It's go time. Probably the least surprising event of the week. Derek Taylor has joined 680 CJOB to become the voice of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. We'll discuss. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Quick Kicks here on Third Down Gamble. I'm Don Charbon. Tonight, it's Heath Graham with me. And Heath, I don't have to read tea leaves to know that when Derek Taylor resigned from CKRM in Regina, that he was going to be moving over to Winnipeg. The rumor started almost immediately when he tweeted out that he was no longer the voice of the riders. Speculation began and it was fulfilled today as he announced he's joining the CJOB team. Now, Derek Taylor does have a history in Winnipeg. He was there for nine years, voiced the Manitoba Bisons during their Vanier Cup winning season as well. I believe he's got some strong family ties in Winnipeg. Not a big surprise, but certainly some big, big shoes to fill, replacing the legend Bob Irving. He is a really consummate professional in terms of the research that he provides. Derek Taylor's details are just unbelievable. And I hope that he continues that with CJOB. The uh, Rough Riders certainly are going to be needing to find somebody to replace him. It's ironic in a way. Often Saskatchewan is referred to as the most coveted play-by-play job in the country. And yet the number of people that have been through the job while Bob Irving held the job for all those years in Winnipeg is a real interesting sort of insight into how difficult maybe that job is in Saskatchewan. Absolutely. And Derek Taylor is leaving after only three seasons as the voice of the Rough Riders. So he was not long tenured here, but I certainly enjoy. He's a a fantastic follow on social media. He looks at the game a little bit differently than some of the old guard that are in some of these play-by-play and and voice of certain CFL teams. He's big on the kicking game. He's big on whether or not to concede safeties, which I know is a hot topic for us from time to time as well. And The only sad part about him just joining Winnipeg now is he was not there during Bob Cameron's career as punter because if there's a play-by-play guy in the CFL that gives props to the kickers and punters, it's Derek Taylor. Bob Cameron is an athlete beyond reproach. And and there's not a lot of CFL players that have three Grey Cup rings on their resume and an outstanding Canadian in the Grey Cup for a punter is something that was well-earned but certainly not very common. I'm hoping that if uh, anyone at CKRM is listening, I am available. I am interested. I've done play-by-play in my past. Did it for about 10 to 15 years, I think. You know where to find me. With Taylor moving out of the way, it does open the door. CKRM now has to find somebody else to call the Rough Riders. It is a coveted job, without a doubt. And with the Grey Cup coming this year... Boy, what a introduction to the job. It will be. And I believe that the Rough Riders are trending the right direction as well. They've been to the West Final in consecutive seasons. And we know the pressure is on for them to perform this year and get to that Grey Cup game at home in Regina. So it can really be a, a way to put your stamp on that play-by-play job 
in Regina when you have a Grey Cup hosted in your city as well. So good luck to the next person. Don, I wish you all the best if you throw your resume in on this one and we'll see what happens. More news coming out of the Canadian Football League. Chris Streveler signs with the Finns, the NFL's Miami Dolphins. That came out of left field in my estimation. I had heard a lot of rumors that he was going to sign up in the northeast of the United States, and here it is. He's on the Sunshine Coast. I'm happy for Chris Streveler. It's his third NFL team in this in under a year, having been released by the Arizona Cardinals and signed briefly with the Baltimore Ravens on their practice roster. I think the Miami Dolphins are a good opportunity for him to see some playing time. And my hope is that the offensive coordinator and head coach can figure out how to use him effectively. We saw in Arizona when Kyler Murray went down with injury, they tried to plunk Strevler in as a replacement in that same kind of playbook. And that does not suit the game of Chris Strevler. They can look at making some interesting backfield alignments with both quarterbacks possibly in play. He can block, he can run, he can throw not necessarily super accurately, but he does have a strong arm as well. So in right situations, Chris Trevler can be a successful second or third string quarterback in the NFL. It was unfortunate that situation that happened in Los Angeles that day when the Cardinals were there and he got tossed in and then he got basically himself and the CFL ripped by Boomer Esiason for whatever reason. I don't think Esiason follows the CFL and clearly didn't realize that Streveler was not a starter up here, but that's his prerogative. I just was really amazed at the verbal tirade that came from him. The Dolphins, of course, are in a bit of a sort of mess right now, if you want to call it that, because of allegations of this, that, and the other thing that surround their team. Maybe for Streveler, that'll be a good fit because there's going to be a change, of course, obviously, and you never know if you get swept up on the right wave, you could go places. There was a lot of talk about him possibly making a return to the CFL as well. We know Coach Paul Apolis with the Ottawa Red Blacks had expressed some interest in bringing him in as a quarterback, and he's certainly athletic and charismatic, which I think both of those go a long way. I'm wishing nothing but success for Chris Strevler, and hopefully he gets into a bit more game action than he did see with Arizona in the couple of seasons that he was uh, with the Cardinals. Other breaking news that the USFL, that other league that is returning, had their draft. An interesting twist in the USFL draft, you don't see this anywhere else. You had to have a contract with USFL before you were eligible to be in the draft. Only the sporting news that I've seen so far has had the listing of the players that were selected. The one name that jumps out is Liam Dobson, who played at Maine and Texas State. He's a Canadian and was touted to be a bona fide starter in the Canadian Football League. And he's now going to play for about 4500 US per game in the USFL. Looking at the salaries, they are a little bit lower structure than even a CFL rookie contract would be. The big point that is a draw for the USFL is that they do have an agreement that they can sign with NFL teams, and it's a shorter season for them and wraps up prior to the NFL season kicking off. So I believe a lot of the players that you see jumping ship from the CFL to sign with the USFL are players that have that 
dream of another crack at an NFL roster. We saw the Paxton Lynch era come to an end in Saskatchewan, and he is another player that has been signed by a USFL team. Former NFL first-round draft pick, tall, strong quarterback, and we'll see if he can nurture a USFL career into another crack at an NFL roster. The Rough Riders had released Lynch a couple days ago to give him this opportunity. The one question that I have about all of this, if you crack a USFL team roster, you play the 10-game schedule, and let's say you make a playoff game, where are you going to have the stamina to go to an NFL camp thereafter in the same season and maybe suit up for another 17 to 20 games? That is almost too much to ask of any human being. That would be in excess of 30 games in one season. That's a very good point. And 25, 30 games would be a long, long season and a lot of football. I, I do think they need to look at it from the perspective of maybe not cracking a roster this season, but getting that look. They could end up on a practice roster with an NFL team and get a look at cracking the full-time roster the following season as well. The money you're looking at about 50,000 US dollars a season for the average player there, which as I mentioned is below a CFL rookie salary. So I, again, it's something that they're doing for the love of the game, but I believe it's really looking at the possibility of turning that into an NFL career at some point. And we'll see where the partnership goes. It, it could set up well to be almost like a farm system for the NFL and for a spring football league to make it and be successful. That's what they need to look at as opposed to being a direct com competitor of the NFL. They look, they need to look at ways to work with the juggernaut that the NFL is and how they can turn their league into a success in a supporting role for the NFL. If you're not going to get an opportunity to play in the NFL following the USFL season because of too much time on the field, you may as well play in the CFL against better competition. And if you stand out there and the NFL comes looking, I think your stock is way higher. The USFL right now, we don't know what quality of play is going to be. We have no idea if the NFL is that motivated to even nab people out of there. And the other, the other part of this equation... The NFL, why would they be plucking people off of rosters before their training camps open? It doesn't make any sense. They're only going to address need when the need arises, i.e. after somebody goes down in the regular season. The USFL will not be playing at that time. Well, we've seen spring football leagues in the U.S. come and go for the better part of three decades now. This could very well just be another one of those similar flash in the pan leagues we haven't seen one with any kind of staying power in since the 1980s realistically we'll have to see how this one plays out there is still talk with the surprise guest appearance at the super bowl by Dwayne the rock johnson has that reignited some of the talk between the nfl and a rejuvenated xfl and we don't have really any answers on that one yet at this point either the only thing that I've read is that the XFL and the NFL are looking at player development together. And that would also entail player safety, equipment, etc. Johnson is looking at the USFL and going, we've got to make sure that we're seen on the horizon because we cannot give the initiative to 
the USFL and let them get away with a season scot-free. We have to steal some of their thunder somehow. So him being at the Super Bowl, yeah, it raised my eyebrows a little bit when I saw him there. And I thought, well, is this the NFL stating that they've made a choice? Or is it just so happens that the organizers of the event thought it would be a great idea to have him there? I would think with the savvy business minds in the NFL and with Dwayne Johnson and his partners, there's more to it than just a coincidence that he was a celebrity coming onto the field to to hype the crowd up. Uh, I believe that there's, maybe they have been talking about talking, uh, something that we haven't uh, haven't mentioned on this show for a few weeks now, but uh, there has to be some ongoing discussion between those two leagues. What it really boils down to at the end of the day is we had a rejuvenated CFL and a successful season and a successful Grey Cup in 2021. A lot of the players that went into free agency have re-upped in CFL contracts, be it a one-year or a two-year deal. And the league as a whole is showing strength. We've got new general managers. We've got new ownership groups. All of these other competing leagues will see what happens with them over the next year or two years. But the CFL is strong and headed in the right direction. The players that were plucked from the CFL were essentially players that had been here and had received little to no interest from the CFL bringing them back. Quarterback Shea Patterson, who played with the Alouettes, offensive tackle Tyler Catalina, uh, John Yarborough, center defensive back Channing Stribling. These are not household names in the CFL. So there was no competition for the star quality that the CFL has. To be fair to the USFL, they've got to start somewhere. They had their draft. They, it was interesting the way they did it. They drafted round by round by position. So first round was quarterback, second round was running backs. And that, I thought, was an interesting way of approaching this. If you want to... The USFL drafted 280 players and left essentially three positions per team to be filled in case there's somebody else that is going to come forward. USFL, if everyone remembers, they were around from 83 to 85. Of those teams that were there, eight have come back. Curious thing for me on two levels. One is they've picked centers where NFL teams already exist. And secondly, the 2022 season at University of Alabama, Birmingham. Playing the entire season in one venue is going to be tough. We saw the NHL have a successful playoff bubble in Edmonton during the height of the pandemic. And the reason to set themselves up in that bubble was to get a season off the ground and going. With a brand new league playing every game in one city, it's going to be tough to build fan bases in cities like New Orleans and Chicago and New Jersey when most of those fans aren't going to be traveling to a USFL game in Alabama to see their home team play. I agree with you. It's a tough way to start. And I'm a little bit surprised because so many of the states have lifted their COVID restrictions. They could actually have probably wound up playing in any venue they wanted, why didn't they secure leases? I'm going to back up to talk about the players and the, and the draft a little bit here as well. You talk about several hundred players basically joining the USFL, but some quick math and, and player availability, there's 121 Division I football programs in the US and 169 Division II schools. So I don't see a labor shortage in any of these leagues, I believe there's enough players consistently to feed 
all of these leagues with quality players year after year. So some of the stars, there'll be a little bit of a, a fight for the guys that aren't quite at that NFL level to see where they end up. But there's certainly going to be enough quality players available for all of these leagues to have full rosters. When the XFL comes along, they're going to have to do the same sort of thing where they're going to have to draft a multitude of players to get started. For the next two to three years, there's going to be a vacuum where a lot of people have been taken off the map and suddenly now teams are going to be left scrambling. But that's only if you have to make major changes. In the Canadian Football League where we see a lot of free agency, but we don't see a lot of influx of new players every year, they're not going to be bothered by that. The NFL is the same thing. Most of the people that are in the league are already there. They're only going to add a few rounds from the draft, and a few of those will make it from that draft. By 2024-25, if the USFL and the XFL still exist, they've already got their rosters. They're only going to be making minor changes, which then sort of in the economy of scale brings things back into balance. The short term, it's going to give a lot of university and college players in the U.S. a couple of more opportunities to pursue a professional football career. Whether that amounts to anything beyond a season or two, we don't yet know. Any model that gives these young players another chance to have a look, maybe get scouted. Some of these players that are going to be signing with XFL and USFL teams could very well end up in the CFL in two or three seasons. I think it's great for football development throughout North America. To the original USFL, you had Jim Kelly, Steve Young, Doug Flutie, all Hall of Famers in different Hall of Fames, started in the USFL and moved on. The key to that, though, was that the USFL at that time lasted more than a season. The AAF and, take your pick of any number of other iterations that have come and gone, don't typically last that long, so you'd never get a name for yourself. To build on what you said there, Doug Flutie was drafted by the New Jersey Generals, Jim Kelly, Houston Gamblers. So the tradition, it, it's cool in a way that the USFL has brought some of these names back, but we're now over 30 years removed from the league existing. So I don't know if there's a big draw from those old USFL fans. And if you're going to try to spark interest in the younger fan group, Maybe it's time for something a little bit different. That's a good point. Most of the people that follow the league initially are almost 40 years past. <laughs> That's not your key demographic. Your demographic is, is the 18 to 30-year-olds. And if the USFL wants to attract them, they've got to be innovative. They've got to be exciting. Now, they do have Fox and they do have NBC well, Fox, I believe, is showing every game, and NBC, I think, is picking up the national games, which is interesting that the two are cooperating on this. If it works out that they have staying power, the real concern in the neighborhood is going to be the XFL when it comes back. Where are they going to fit in this universe if the USFL happens to be a success because you can only have one spring league. You can't have two. I don't think there's any way that the two can coexist. No, and that's maybe where the XFL and and Dwayne Johnson's talks with the NFL looks at a different model. And and perhaps we get into more of a farm system similar to what you have in the National Hockey League and Major League Baseball and even the NBA with their their D League in having the XFL could find a niche as a true 
farm system for the NFL and being able to pull players up that you own the rights to as you have injuries and those sorts of things on your NFL team. CFL players all wear a face mask for safety. With COVID-19 on our field, we also need to wear our masks to keep everyone safe. Do your part. Be a team player. Bring up a point that Arash Madani had made on uh, Three Down Nation, uh, that a story that they picked up. Arash had essentially said that the CFL has gone quiet. And while all this other news is happening, the CFLs had their free agency period, but we're not talking about the CFL right now. He's thinking that the promotion side of it is is stumbling a little bit. I'll push back a little bit on that. The CFL is right now in the midst of reconstituting itself as an entity. Once we get closer to training camps, especially when we get into combines, we're going to start to see more and more push coming from the CFL. And of course, uh, Genius Sports is interplay with this is still to be seen how it works out. I do agree, though, that we need to have more chatter about the CFL, not just blip chatter. We have awards, we have free agency, we have the combines, and then it's training camps. We we need the stuff to fill in the in-between part where we're getting some positive news. We do, and that's something that we have discussed at length on this podcast is how the CFL brands and markets itself. We talked about the speculation of some sort of agreement with the XFL. We've talked about this new connection with Genius Sports. And I kind of agree with Arash in in one sense in that the CFL isn't front and center right now. Do they need to really look at how to amp up the noise from the CFL so they don't get lost in these talks about XFL and these USFL signings and drafts and that sort of thing. You don't want to be the forgotten one. So if there's a way to get the word of the CFL back out there, we need to look at how best to do that. Signings are still coming in the CFL. Teams are still signing players to training camp rosters. That's happening daily. I just don't think there's other stuff happening. What's happening for the 2022 season? What type of innovative plans do they have? The NFL has its own network and you get a steady diet of NFL all the time. The CFL doesn't have that and it would be nice if somehow it could. I don't know that they've got the wherewithal to afford it. It is a quite a costly venture. Could you have something on a satellite radio where you're just talking CFL 24-7. And there's a lot of repetition on the NFL network. So you don't have to fill 24 every day. You maybe have to fill enough so that you, when you do repeat, it, it doesn't happen twice in a day. Something like that certainly could work. I, I believe that one thing that's glaring right now is we haven't really seen or heard from Randy Ambrosi essentially since the Grey Cup. What What is he doing right now? There, I'm sure there's talks behind closed doors that we're not privy to. When you don't see somebody like that, there isn't a, enough noise. The Our national broadcaster that carries every CFL game doesn't generally lead with CFL stories, certainly not in the offseason at the peak of hockey season. There's a lot of things that could change to put a positive spin and to keep that momentum going, and we're just not seeing it right now. As much as we try every week to put out a show to talk about CFL football, and I know there's countless other CFL podcasts out there. 
we don't have the marketing and the reach that somebody like TSN or a national CFL network or Canadian football network would have to draw more people in those quieter times. Three Down Nation does a wonderful job of keeping the chatter alive. They, like us, come out weekly with a podcast. And if you go to threedownnation.com, you can follow the CFL very well with all of the uh, newsworthy items that they put up. They have that. But again, that's somebody outside of the league that because they love the CFL so much, they're doing it for the league. Maybe it's going to be the partnership with Genius Sports that's going to change all this. It's something that we're going to talk about in our next podcast, get into this much more deeply about the track that the CFL is on. In the interim, there's a a lot of excitement, I think, that people are looking toward a, a full schedule in 2022. There hasn't been any of that apprehension that we had last year. When will it start? Will it start? If it does start, what will they do? How will the playoffs be? Right now, the schedule is out and it's sitting there untouched. What a relief that is. I'm 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 happy to see it. I'm hopeful that as COVID restrictions continue to lift across the country, we won't see any crowd size limits in any venue across the league. We see the Edmonton Elks are really on a season ticket push with some great deals to get families and young fans invigorated and interested in the CFL. And I hope to see similar things across the league, especially places like Edmonton and BC that have such large capacity stadiums. Gone are the days where you're going to sell those out for regular season games at regular ticket prices. It's an opportunity to look at how you can draw those crowds. Saskatchewan, Winnipeg, close to capacity in a lot of their games, but there's a little bit of wiggle room that they can do to to try to fill the house and certainly in in some of the eastern markets as well. The more we see fans in the building, regardless of how much they pay for a ticket, the better it's going to be in the long run. We know they're going to come. They're going to buy chips and drinks and merchandise when they're at those games. And if you can hook those young families on an opportunity where it's affordable to bring your kids to a CFL game, that's where you're going to win back and build a new fan base. The Alouette's drive starts with 1%. Basically, you put 1% down, which I thought was a brilliant tactic. Talking to the Rough Riders, season tickets are ahead of schedule. Of course, with the Grey Cup, that's a huge motivator. It's time to get creative. Had a shortened season, you came off the heels of no season, and the CFL is going to have to get creative to get people back into the stands. In the interim, is still going to be a gate-run league until such time as, whether it's Genius Sports or another sort of venture that they get into, will help shelter against those rainy days. And I, I know I've said it on this podcast, but I think it bears repeating. Michael Lisko, who was a commissioner 21 years ago, said, job of the CFL is to sell scarcity. And the whole point of the idea is that you only get to do this 10 times, 11 times in a season. Play on that. This is a rare event. Let's take, take advantage of what we have in front of us. And the other th- model that he pushed for, and who knows, maybe this is part of the conversation now, 25,000 is your break-even point. Every stadium has that capacity. Montreal may be closest to not making that, but everybody else can fit that comfortably. 
If you get that as your bottom line, if that's not an unimaginable amount of people being at a football game, then everything else starts to help out the bottom line beyond that. You actually get into the profit side of the equation. 25,000 is a fantastic number to average across this league. It kind of reminds me of Major League Baseball in a way when they started to put in the retro stadiums and you take a, uh, even one of the older ballparks like Fenway Park as well, which is not a huge capacity stadium. It builds an atmosphere and a game day experience that draws people in. And if you build a, a strong atmosphere and a strong game day experience for that smaller crowd, it breeds a really loyal crowd. If anything that the NFL 2020 season taught us is that small crowds can make a lot of noise. We saw that in the Super Bowl where they had limited capacity, and yet that crowd was loud. We saw that in playoff games. The CFL as well, limited capacity, but these stadiums sound full if that crowd is excited and motivated. The day of the 50,000-seat stadium, I think, needs to go. We're well past that. I do believe that people are more comfortable in a smaller venue affair where the sight lines are all fantastic. Fan experience is a big part. And with TV packages and streaming services, there's a lot of ways to compete for your dollar as opposed to sitting in the stands. And we're starting to see it in, in various sports. I don't know if we have any many NASCAR fan listeners here, but Daytona International Speedway spent hundreds of millions of dollars in the last decade revamping Daytona Speedway to make it a more fan-friendly environment. They cut capacity by tens of thousands to make it better for the people that are there. The bigger seats, bigger concourses, more concession options as opposed to just a hot dog and a beer. I mentioned Major League Baseball. Camden Yards in Baltimore was really the first one that went that retro. And unfortunately for those in Toronto, it kind of took the window to the sales of the Skydome, now Rogers Centre. It was the last of the huge monolith stadiums that was built. And Camden Yards opened a couple of years later and pretty much made it obsolete because they really took that retro and that warm atmosphere as opposed to the marvels of the Skydome and made the Baltimore Orioles games a much different fan experience. It's hard to believe, but in our lifetime, how Skydome has basically gone from a world wonder to when can they take the wrecking ball to it. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean. Follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at Third Down Gamble. Join us again next time. The Third Down Gamble podcast. Audio. Worth watching.